There are people who get up every day and work to protect us from toxic chemicals in our food, our water, and our air, in the products we buy, in the places we work, and in our homes. They devote their lives to preventing cancer, learning disabilities, and other harm, but they are mostly unknown and unheralded. They're Toxic Avengers, and you'll meet them here on the Toxic Avengers podcast. Welcome to episode 14 of the Toxic Avengers podcast. Thanks for joining. In this episode, we have part two of my interview with Ted Smith, founder and executive director of the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. We begin part two of our interview talking about the birth of Silicon Valley, the perception of tech as a clean industry, and the reality of workplace health risks. We then talk about the beginnings of the coalition, spurred by the discovery of toxic solvents leaking into the area's groundwater from the Fairchild Semiconductor Plant, and the early activism of Lorraine Ross, which ultimately led to the designation of 29 Superfund sites in Silicon Valley. We discuss the role of firefighters and the plumbers union, along with the coalition, in developing local laws on the handling of hazardous materials and public right to know of the storage of hazardous chemicals, which became models for state and federal laws. We cover some of the history of the 1986 amendments to the Superfund law, including the role of the National Toxics Coalition, the creation of the Toxics Release Inventory, and the importance of technical assistance grants for citizens fighting for cleanups of contaminated waste sites in their communities. Here's part two of my interview with Ted Smith, recorded last December. So, okay, so the canneries start moving away, and why did the electronics industry grow up? There in Sil- well, it wasn't Silicon Valley till they were there. But so what? Yeah. What led to that? Uh, two things, from what I can understand. One was that Stanford was here, and that they had a um, pretty pretty good engineering uh, school, and that they saw the value of of developing that into a world class institution. IBM had was already a major. Manufacturer um, early on, before even before the the semiconductor revolution, they were doing electronics manufacturing, and they set up a huge facility in South San Jose that became their their world class disk drive manufacturing site. And they set up here, I think, in the fifties. So they've been here for a long time. And then others began. To, uh, uh, Fairchild grew up here, which was the first of the the semiconductor manufacturers. It, it included people who were the inventors of the, the semiconductor chip, including a guy named Shockley. And they, they set up the first factory in Mountain View. Eight of their chief engineers then left to form their own companies. They were referred to by Shockley as the traitorous eight by their leaving, but they set up companies like Intel, National Semiconductor Advanced Micro Devices. And so that, that all took place in, you know, pretty early on in the 70s. And so by the time I got here, all that had already happened. And the other, the other thing was that Hewlett and Packard uh, came out of Stanford and set up their own manufacturing operation in their garage. It's another famous origin story here. Yeah. And they you know, established a, a model for high-tech manufacturing where they eventually 
had factories that made all the different components for the final products that they made. So it was all right here in in this one neighborhood. It was it was before the model of outsourcing and developing supply chains really came about. So it was a totally different model. But all that and and plus an awful lot of they were able to recruit people from other engineering schools um, around the country because of the climate here and because it was, you know, relatively at the time, relatively inexpensive to move here and yeah. to enjoy the benefits of of uh, a Mediterranean climate. So I think it was all that together. Um, and the local governments, of course, loved it and they made it very easy for companies to set up new factories, new industrial parks. The industry called itself the clean industry. They referred to themselves as light industry. No mention at all that it was a, a hazardous materials handling industry. So local governments would give them permits to set up shop right across the street from residential neighborhoods without realizing what they were doing. And that, of course, led to some serious problems later on. But all of that was a, a climate of, of um, you know, support for growing this new industry. And it, and it just took off. Right. And do you know when they represented themselves as light industry or clean industry? I mean, there was not, well, maybe there was, but, you know, that was in comparison to refineries and steel plants and things that yeah. were sort of more yeah. traditional sources of major right. air pollution, water pollution. Do you think they, is it your sense that they well, this isn't probably the nicest way to say this. Do you think they knew that they were bullshitting local governments when they were calling themselves clean? Or oh. did they actually think they were clean even though they were, you know, dealing with thousands of chemicals and, and you know, I mean, how did, do you know if, do you have any historical sense or what their self-perception was at that time? Well, I'll, I'll, I'm not sure I can answer that directly, but I, I do know that from the very beginnings, they've always had a very keen PR sense. Yep. Um, they have hired some of the very best public relations people. Um, and I, I know who some of them are. I got to know a couple of them. And they they knew that having good relationships with local governments were important. And they went out of their way to, uh, you know, I would just say kiss up to them. And so, and they knew that clean had a, had twofold meaning that clean meaning that they didn't have smokestacks they weren't detroit they weren't houston they weren't chicago and but they also knew that most people would interpret that to mean it's a non-polluting industry and they claim that they never meant it that way it was and in fact what they really say is that the clean always had to do with the the chips themselves rather than the environment that right. the manufacturing environment itself inside the factories has to be basically 100% clean. And what they mean by that is clean of particles because they're, they're making these little tiny circuits. They're etching them on these little slivers of silicon. And, you know, it, it's down to infinitesimally small. Uh, even back then, it was so small that a speck of dust, uh, if, it, if it got onto a chip surface and didn't get washed away, would be what they called a killer boulder. And it would be like if you're driving along a street and this enormous boulder comes rolling down the hill and clogs up the street, you can't get by. Well, that's what happened to the circuits if, if there was a, even a tiny speck of dust. So that's why they had the, clean, the, the, um, the bunny suits in the clean rooms. 
And right. so it was all designed to make sure that the particulate matter was completely gone. And they measured the cleanliness of the, the, um, the, the manufacturing rooms by the number of particles per cubic meter. And it got down to ridiculous levels. But that was all designed to protect the chips, not the environment, not the workers. And then, of course, a lot of the, a lot of the chemicals, particularly the, the volatile solvents, when the solvents evaporate, that's not particulate. That's that's a vapor, and so that doesn't. They they use the solvents to actually clean the chips, and the the solvent residue doesn't screw up the circuitry. So, I they were certainly well aware of the the ambiguity of the use of the term, but they liked using it when they were selling themselves to uh, in zoning issues like that, saying, "Oh yeah, we're the clean industry. Don't worry about us." Right. Okay. So they those you know there's some places already there much earlier, but then it develops. And, and even though they have these clean rooms and the bunny suits, it starts to turn out that people working at these places are getting sick. And your wife, Mandy, who, whose career is very much centered on occupational health was, began representing some of these people who are getting sick. Can you say a little bit about that? And, uh, Santa Clara Kosh and Faze? Yeah. Yeah, she she'd actually gotten involved with occupational health issues when she still lived up in the East Bay before we knew each other. There was a group up there called Baykosh, the Bay Area Committee on Occupational Safety and Health. Mm-hmm. And they did fact sheets on hazards in d- various industries. So when she came down here and we got together, she thought that it would be a good idea to start a Electronics Committee on Occupational Safety and Health, or ECOSH. And she was able to find some uh, like-minded activists, partly people who worked inside the electronics industry and partly technical experts who were toxicologists or industrial hygienists. And together they started researching what was going on in the industry. And right around that time, Jimmy Carter was president. Eula Bingham was the head of federal OSHA. And they had a program for funding local COSH groups around the country. And the New Horizons, I think it was called. And uh, ECOSH applied for one of the grants. And they got a grant that they used for very good purposes. They established a project on health and safety and electronics, or FASE. And they started researching the chemicals. They started a hotline to reach out to the workers to see what their complaints might be. They started training classes. They developed a whole series of fact sheets and they were able to get the attention of some of the local media who again were shocked to learn that this was a chemical handling industry, the thing that they thought was the clean industry. And they, they began to have workers come forward who were fairly seriously ill from working in some of these plants and Mandy, um, started filing some workers' compensation cases for, for people who could no longer work at their regular jobs and started having some success in, in representing people. And they, the, the, the local paper at the time, which was a pretty good paper, the San Jose Mercury, ran a, a big series called The Chemical Handlers. And it, it kind of blew the whistle for the first time publicly on the fact that this clean industry was a chemical handling industry. And there was a, a really super reporter named Susan Yoakum who did a lot of those early stories, and it, it made a big impact. It got Cal OSHA to come in and do a, 
a big report on the the industry and then that report still you know is is it, a lot of it's out of date by now it came out i think in 1980 but it it um documented the procedures and documented the use of the chemicals, et cetera. NIOSH was called in the National Institute for Occupational Safety and Health to do some what they called health hazard evaluations at the time. Mm-hmm. One was at National Semiconductor. I think another was at Signetics. And they did wall-to-wall inspections. And they they found what some of the hazards were, and they told the companies they had to clean them up. So there was there was a lot of activity going on. And a lot of it was because they were able to get this funding from federal OSHA. Of course, when Reagan came in in 1980, they they wiped out that program and that was the end of that that support. But nevertheless, they'd been able to do a lot of the research. They'd done a lot of the awareness raising and um, they they no doubt had a really significant impact. on the, the, the other thing that they discovered was that when they would vent these chemical vapors, after, after you use the solvents to, to wash the chips, you have to get rid of the 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 waste vapors um, and you send them up a a chimney and you send them out into the air and usually there was no requirements there were no regulations that looked at you know what concentration of what chemicals were coming out in that air discharge they just they just vented it but what they discovered at some of these plants was that the the vapors that came out of the chimneys would then get recirculated back down into the workrooms by being sucked down into the air intakes that were up in the roofs also. Oh, God. And so um, this is one of the things that, that OSHA and NIOSH were able to, to discover and to document. And so the workers were getting exposed to recyc- recycled solvents. And, and so they were getting doubly exposed once on the line and then later just recycling it back into the air. So they they blew the whistle on that and got that stopped up also. They learned about the toxic gases that were being used, arsine, phosphine, diborane, some of the most deadly gases uh, that had ever been developed. And those were used as what they called dopants. It's a way of depositing metals into these microcircuits on an atom-by-atom basis, literally. And so, but they are so, so toxic that later on we did a report uh, with a meteorologist from San Jose State named Ken Mackay, and looked at a, using a, an EPA modeling scheme, what would happen if one of these arsine cylinders failed and released its its contents, and they drew circles of how far out would be the zone of death, and within a you know the first circle, ninety percent of the people would die. Within the next circle, be down to. 50% the next circle down to maybe 20, whatever it was. And then we did a press conference to release that report. And and there were these big tanker trucks bringing in these gas cylinders to all these semiconductor plants that were based all over the valley here. And, and one of them we discovered had its own factory where they bottled the gases from a, from one mega container into these bottles that they take around the plants and then transport them through the residential neighborhoods. People didn't like it when they found out about that, and they, they made some big changes from that. But anyway, all of that was, was, came about because of that early work that was done by, by Mendy and her colleagues at, at SCOSH. Uh, it, it went through several different names, SCOSH, ECOSH, and then FASE was their, their uh, OSHA-funded project. And so when the, the point about the 
Aaron takes bringing back the solvents that were just vented from some other pipe on the same roof, basically. Yeah. So the not everybody working in those plants was wearing the bunny suit. Some people were on the line, but of course there were probably a lot of other people in the building who weren't even wearing a bunny suit as far as protection from whatever was going through the air. Yeah, but again, that's kind of a misnomer. The bunny suits were never designed to protect the people. They were designed to protect the product. One of the dirtiest parts of the clean room they always said were people. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, if, you, if you just rolled up your sleeve right now and rubbed your fingers against your skin and looked at it pretty carefully, you'd see little pieces of skin flaking off. Those could be killer, those could be killer boulders. So wearing a bunny suit would mean that your flaking skin wouldn't screw up the product. And, and, you know, even if they're wearing these little paper masks, that's not going to protect you from the fumes, from the vapors. They go right through that. Right. The protective equipment was never designed to protect the workers. It was always designed to protect the product. They didn't want people sneezing on the chips. So right. <laughs> they didn't want people breathing. You know, whenever you breathe, you're breathing out small particles, little droplets. Um, right. So, again, it's... You know, they, they show the pictures. They say this is cleaner than a hospital. Well, yeah, in some ways, in some ways it was. But in, in other ways, not so much. Right. And so when Mandy and her colleagues are taking these cases and people are getting sick, uh, had they, how early was the, well, either the risk of cancer identified or the risk of reproductive harm, the the, the risk to pregnant women working in these lines. I mean, was that, is that an early recognition or does that kind of come a little bit later? That, that started to, started to arise fairly early on. There were people who came to Scosh and talked about how they had had a miscarriage or talked about their, they, they might've had a, a case of cancer and were wondering if that could be connected to the chemicals. So they started trying to understand that better too, and learned that some of these chemicals, in fact, were classified as reproductive hazards or classified as carcinogens. Right. And then some people in the health and medical community started speaking out about this. There was a, an occupational health doctor here who was very influential named uh, Dr. Joseph Ledoux. He ran the first um, occupational health clinic here in the Valley, and he saw hundreds of electronics worker patients and he started writing about his findings. He published an article in Technology Review, which is the MIT Journal, in 1984, which was called The Not-So-Clean Business of Making Chips, and was a you know documentation of what his experiences were that he'd been observing as he was treating electronics workers. And again, it was a sort of not not exactly a mass publication journal, but a highly respected professional journal. Right. And again, it was very shocking to a lot of people who just didn't know any of this stuff. And he he's written extensively. He's written many, many. He, he was the chief editor of a book that came out in 1986 on the microelectronics industry. And he got a number of different authors from around the world, really, to, to write chapters. Again, talking specifically about reproductive hazards and, and cancer and other chronic illnesses. And Mandy started representing women who had given birth to children with pretty serious birth defects. And that's mm -hmm. something that she continues to do these days to today. And that there are still a large number of, of not only reproductive hazards, but developmental uh, 
hazards that that can stunt the growth of the brain and that's the neurological development is is one of the most serious because it, as as Mandy says if you are born without a functioning brain you there's no fix for that you can't do a brain replacement and so these are children that grow up to be adults and she's had clients who are now into their 30s and 40s who have the brain development of a two or three year old and so you have to you know the public pays for special education and then after that additional services just to support people who can't take care of themselves and there's large numbers of people like that and so the ongoing challenges of uh, again some of the hidden costs of high tech development are, are in the realm of of the the whole disability community right so i i i think that the oh oh there was there was a time when there was one of the the solvents that they use called glycol ethers and it's a whole family of chemicals and there's a state health department program here called hesis it's the hazard alert system that publishes documentation on health hazards of various chemicals and they did a one on the glycol ethers and and really published how how potent a reproductive toxin it was so we started a campaign that we called the campaign to end the miscarriage of justice and it was to get the industry to stop using glycol ethers and other potent reproductive hazards and we were calling on the industry to do studies of their own workforce to see just how significant this was as a a problem that could be measured if you did some epidemiological work and and we finally the company started doing such studies there was one that was published in 1986 out of the digital equipment corporation plant in massachusetts and they they found high levels of miscarriages in that plant and then we wanted to get an industry wide study they actually did uh, appoint a a scientific review panel to figure out how to do such a study they got it funded they were able to conduct it at the same time IBM did one in all of their factories so there were these two other larger studies that came out later in the 1980s and in in all cases they all found elevated levels of miscarriages they refused to look at birth defects so we still don't know to this date there's never been a an epidemiological study that has focused on that but the 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 um significant elevation of of rates of miscarriage was well documented in in now three separate studies and so that that has continued to be a a major focus of of Mandy's work and it it is a major focus of my work today even trying to still get the industry to get rid of solvents that can cause miscarriages and cancer okay so silicon valley toxic coalition sort of grew was originally a I don't even know if it was named that at this point. It was a project within uh, Santa Clara Kosh. Yes. Yeah. In in 1982, end of 1982, the state water board, regional water board, published some information that they had found leaking underground storage tanks in South San Jose at the Fairchild uh, semiconductor plant there and that in that part of the the county the water table is quite high and so the the chemicals had already gotten into the aquifer by the time it was discovered that there was a leak mm-hmm. 
and the the regional board jumped on it. They required Fairchild to explore what the extent of the hazard was. And then they required all the other companies that were storing these chemicals underground in these underground tanks to likewise do some investigation by drilling monitoring wells and to try to figure out if they too had leaks. And it turned out that virtually everybody who was storing chemicals in underground storage tanks had had leaks of, of a whole variety of very nasty chemicals. And so in a rel- relatively short period of time, the, the whole valley was found to have um, contaminated aquifers. And then the thing, next thing that happened was that there was a a woman who lived across the street from the Fairchild plant in South San Jose named Lorraine Ross. She had just recently given birth to a, a daughter who was born with a serious heart defect. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was in 1981, because it was the same year that my daughter was born. And Lorraine had taken a class in high school where she'd learned about what had happened at Love Canal and Lois Gibbs. And so a light went off in her head and she wondered if maybe her daughter's birth defect might be related to this story that she had just seen about the chemicals in the drinking water. So she went door to door in her neighborhood, canvassing other neighbors to see if anybody else had a similar experience. And she found that a number of them did. And she wrote an open letter to the mayor that was published in the local newspaper saying, dear mayor Hayes, here's, here's my story. I'm one of a number of families in this Los Paseos neighborhood that has recently given birth to a a child with a serious birth defect. We're concerned that it might be from the contaminated water from this leaking underground tank at Fairchild. Please help. And our mayor actually took it seriously and started a series of community meetings and people started coming forward and they came out of the woodwork. And it was at that point that I realized that with all of the work that had already been done by Skosh about the the hazards of these chemicals, that maybe this would be a way of opening up a new a new part of this effort to try to get clean up the industry. Because what we'd also realized was that even though Skosh had been able to document and even shine the light on what was happening to the workers, most people still felt in the community if it wasn't happening to them, then they would the reaction seemed to be, oh, I'm sorry it's happening, but it's not me, so I'm not going to do anything about it. Yeah. But once the chemicals got outside of the factories and into the drinking water, like overnight, light bulbs went on all around the county. It was like, holy shit, now this could be me. It's not just the workers. This can be me and my family. And that's outrageous. And we got to do something about it. And we tapped into that feeling and realized that this was an opportunity to really make an impact. And there was the the local fire chiefs association had already started a process to try to draft a new ordinance to try to make sure that this didn't happen again in the future. We linked up with that effort and realized that we needed to form a, a new broad-based community initiative, which we ended up calling the Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. We named it after a a similar initiative that had happened back in New Jersey. They called it the Delaware Valley Toxics Coalition. Oh. So we just took that name and called it Silicon Valley Toxics Coalition. And since we knew we were 
going to be coming up against an industry that was enormously powerful. We knew we had to have a broad-based coalition. So we wanted, we, we knew it had to include both labor and environmental, public health and community people. And, and so we, we found organizations and individuals from all those different perspectives that all came together. And we not only supported what the firefighters were doing, we added in some of our own provisions, including a provision to require the companies using these chemicals to make that public. So it was a public right to know provision, which had not been originally part of the the uh, firefighters initiative. And that became controversial with the companies and they raised all the same issues that they later raised elsewhere, which was that this was, you know, trade secrets and it was going to, you know, destroy the industry, et cetera, et cetera. But we were able to work through all that and we ended up getting what was really the first public right to know ordinance passed all throughout the county. Each city had to pass exactly the same language because it had to be city by city due to the just the vagarities of how local laws work here. And so we worked very closely with local governments as well as with this broad coalition. And the fact that it was the firefighters who were leading the effort was very helpful because, you know, firefighters are very well respected and admired for the work that they do. And nobody really wanted to, I mean, certainly the industry didn't want to get into a big pissing match with with the firefighters who they relied on whenever they had, you know, a, a chemical uh, spill or a explosion or a fire or anything like that. So that all worked out. We were able to get this local hazardous materials model ordinance passed in all the different cities here in the in the county and in the process built our organization as a spin-off from Scosh. So it, it got to the point where we ended up transforming from being a project of Scosh to becoming a, a freestanding 501c3 nonprofit. So Scosh continued to focus on the occupational health and we we focused on the environmental and community health aspects of it. So that was that was the origin of how how we and, and then we, we worked with a, a local assemblyman, Byron Schur, who had actually been at Stanford Law School the same time I was there. He was then an assemblyman, and we got him to take this bill and to pass it through the California legislature. And then later on, I got involved with the National Toxics Campaign, and we added in some of these provisions into the the uh, reauthorization of Superfund and into what they called, became known as the Toxics Release Inventory. So it, it was, a, in my view, still the the most successful effort to start at the local level and then build your way up to state, national, and then even the international level, there was efforts to also build on this work and to build what they call the Pollution Relation Transport Registry internationally. So it's it's a continues to be, I think, a good model for how you could do bu- good public policy. You start at the bottom and build up rather than this top-down thing that we see so much of. Right. So... You covered a lot right there. <laughs> a lot of amazing, amazing work. Very well summarized. So the the knowledge about the Fairchild, the leak at the Fairchild plant, Why? Did, how did the water, regional water board even start looking at that? That's a good question. And I'm not sure I remember exactly how that happened. It might have been a whistleblower who contacted them, or it may have been that they just we're starting an aquifer protection program. Mm. See, we rely on our aquifers for over half the water supply here. 
Um, this area is known as semi-arid. Uh, we, we, uh, the average rainfall here is about 14 inches of rain a year, which is barely more than a desert climate. And as the area started expanding, I mean, in the 1950s, there was only about 50,000 people here. Um, now we have a million. And so the, the demand on the water supply has been just enormous. We've had to import our water uh, significantly. We used to get most of it from the aquifers. We now get less than half of it from the aquifers, and we import the rest through the California Water Project. And so they've un the water officials have understood for a long time the, the importance of making sure that the water quality in the aquifers was not jeopardized. And in the area in the South County, down where Fairchild was, they knew that the aquifers are quite shallow, the drinking water aquifers. Mm -hmm. Whereas in North County, they're down several hundred feet. In the South County, it's, it's like, you know, maybe 40 or 50 feet and you get into a drinking water aquifer. So it, it's easy to pollute. And so it's really important to make sure that you do everything you can to protect those aquifers. And it may have been just a routine way of looking at that. And they, they discovered the leak, but as I say, I don't remember exactly. And then, so they, after Fairchild, they find that, or they, they look into that. And then I think they, they tested in something like 65 out of the 79 different electronics facilities in the, I guess, was it in the County or in the Valley had some sort of leaking, right? I mean, it was a, yeah, yeah, it was, it was almost, almost all of them. Yeah. And it was all the big names at the time. It was Intel, Hewlett Packard, National Semiconductor. I mean, you name it, they were, they were all doing the same thing. See, they, they put the chemicals into these underground tanks. And then, in theory, periodically when the tanks filled up, they would call in a, a hazardous waste hauler. They would siphon the, the liquid chemicals out of the tank into the truck, carry them away to a hazardous waste site, and dump them there, and then fill up the tank again. And what was discovered at Fairchild was that one, one of their employees said, this was the best tank we ever had because we never had to empty it. Well, they never had to call in a truck because, because the tank itself was leaking. Um, and, and the people who were supposed to be paying attention uh, were either asleep at the wheel or thought they could save some money by not having to empty the tank. But these chemicals, are they're solvents and acids. Well, what are solvents and acids? Their job is to eat through things, and they ate through the, the tank wall, and right. they got into the, the aquifers. One of the things that the Hazardous Materials Model Ordinance did was to require anybody storing any kind of material underground had to use double wall tanks, and there had to be a, a monitoring system in between the outer wall and the inner wall so that if the inner wall uh, failed, the, the monitoring device would go off and tell you you had a leak. The outside tank would contain that link until you could replace the tank. Right. So the system of double containment has gone a long way into preventing future leaks like that. But it, it, it was a, a very you know traumatic way of learning that lesson and a very expensive lesson. As you say, uh, the vast majority of the companies here had to dig out their tanks. They had to do massive cleanup. It was, you know, at times people use the figure of $100 million worth of just cleanup costs. Later, we led a big campaign to get EPA to step in and 
declare these sites to be Superfund sites. And again, that was enormously successful campaign. They ended up listing, I think, 29 of the sites on their Superfund list, which gave us the, desi the, the designation of having more Superfund sites than any place else in the country. And of course, our strategy was to get more and more attention to this, to get more resources, to get more prevention. And, and that did as much as anything because that sent shockwaves around the world that, the, again, the clean industry has more Superfund sites than any place else. So again, the, the, the theme or the, the ties all this together is our efforts to draw attention to the problems, to focus the attention of government and other agencies and entities who have some interest in protecting the, the environment and to get the companies to change their ways and to use their enormous resources to prevent pollution rather than to have to continue to clean it up. And it was so expensive for them to clean it up that they learned that lesson, I think reasonably well. That mm -hmm. it, it's not just a slogan to say pollution prevention pays. If, you're, if your cost of cleanup are in the range of $100 million, you can do an awful lot of prevention for that kind of money. And so uh, um, that was, I, I think, again, and, and I consider the, you know, all of this to be important in terms of building toward that, the success of that strategy. But I think that the Superfund campaign was probably, looking back on it, maybe the most important of all, just because it was so shocking and because it, it made an impact. And you go back and you look at the, the headlines from the time, um, not just locally, but everywhere that, uh, you know, the, the, the clean industry has, has all these Superfund sites. Okay. So Superfund was enacted in 1980 and that's sort of the first, you know, that's in part reaction to Love Canal and of course other places around the country that were identified as improper disposal of hazardous waste and that created the fund, a federal fund to help pay for cleanups for sites where there weren't responsible parties, you know, that you could get to pay for the cleanup. And then it also held the responsible parties responsible for cleaning up the sites where they were around and there was joint and several liability. And so that's kind of the, I mean, I'm very broad brush, the initial, the initial part of Superfund. And then in 19, I'm trying to remember if the Superfund amendments. I, I should know this. I can't remember if it's 1984 or 1986. I think it's. Yeah, <laughs> same with me. Yeah. It was. I think it started. I think it started in 84 and was culminated in 86. Is yeah. the way I remember. Okay, so that sounds right. And that's sort of a key. That is that time period. You know, so obviously 80 and then particularly 84 through 86 is right at the heart of the time that the work you're doing in Silicon Valley is taking place, and you're passing the model ordinance for hazardous waste for mm -hmm. the underground tanks and also the public right to know. And then also in 1986, California passes what's known as Proposition 65, Prop 65, which is a, a, another major right to know and pollution prevention state ballot initiative that's been hugely influential in California, of course, and the United States. So all of that's happening at this time. So so you all got involved in the model ordinance for hazardous waste storage that the firefighters were already working on. And what 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 led the firefighters if the issue was so I mean it sounds like the issue was water leaking contaminated water or sorry c c pollutants 
uh, chemicals leaking into groundwater and then in some places the drinking water. So what was it about that? Why was it that the firefighters got involved and took the lead on that whole? What was their concern and how did that come about? Yeah, good question. It's an important one. But be, before I get to that, let me just make one clarification. Sure. You've used the ter- term hazardous waste a couple of times. Yeah. This was actually a hazardous materials model ordinance, okay. not, not yes. just a hazardous waste. And that was, again, one of the significant things. We weren't just focusing on waste. We were focusing on materials right. because materials become waste. So we're taking, we didn't, we didn't use the terminology at the time, but it was, you know, some early life cycle type of thinking. Right. And and the and 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 the firefighters' concern was that they were the ones who got called in whenever there was a problem, and they, they realized early on, and they had to do the inspections, the regular fire inspections. They would go into these big factories and they would see all these enormous, you know, containers of of hazardous materials, toxic materials, yeah. and they would you know check around to see what was going on, and they discovered these were some pretty nasty things. And they started hiring their own chemists as, as part of their, their crews because they realized they needed more expertise themselves. The city of Santa Clara Fire Department, I think, had three full-time chemists back at, when we were doing all this stuff. Mm. So, I mean, this was not your normal, you know, run-of-the-mill fire department. Right. But they also knew that when they got called out, they had to know what, particularly if it was a fire, what kinds of fire suppression techniques to use. And they knew that some of these chemicals, you you couldn't just, you know, put them out using traditional fire suppression techniques. Particularly, I remember one time there was a lithium factory here Mm. um, early on making lithium batteries. And lithium, you know, is highly flammable, highly explosive, and it doesn't respond well to water. You put water on a, a lithium fire, you're going to get an explosion. And I remember one time the fire department was called out and they, they weren't allowed into the plant. And because the, the factory managers thought that again, who knows it would, they'd learn some of their trade secrets or maybe they thought they'd come in and make a mess out of things. The firefighters just stood back and let the place burn because they weren't allowed in. And yeah. so they had some, some fairly serious run-ins with, with the factory managers. There was another situation. We, again, when we formed the Toxis Coalition, we, we formed a board of directors, which included people from all the different constituencies. And there was a guy named Jerry Floyd, who was a, a captain in the San Jose Fire Department, mm-hmm. who was on our board. And his experience, which he talked about a lot publicly at all these different public hearings, was that he was called in one time at a chip plant fire and his job was to get up on the roof and to cut a hole in the roof to allow the smoke to to get out. And he had a big chainsaw with him on the roof and was about to cut through when somebody screamed at him, said, don't cut there. If you do, you will hit a toxic gas piping line right underneath that roof and then we'll all be dead. Well, that sobered him up pretty quickly. And he said, ever since then, I have been a passionate advocate of the right to know about what these chemicals are and where they're being stored. And it's for, not only for my own safety, it's for the community safety. Right. So that's just one one of the stories that, that uh, 
came about. And the, the firefighters also knew that when they were being called to these fires or, or, or any kind of chemical accident, a chemical spill, that they were going to be exposed to some of the, the really hazardous fumes. And they sometimes would have to suit up with their uh, the, the, the fully enclosed breathing apparatus, you know, the moon suits kind of thing. Right. Before, So they had to get training on all that stuff. So they were well aware of the fact that these were really nasty chemicals. And it started from their own health and safety, their own protection. But they also understood that their job was to protect the communities. And so that what they were learning to protect themselves, they also knew had to be applied to the communities. And the fact that they supported our proposal for making public the chemical inventory, which they were collecting, was really important. Some of them opposed that, saying that if this were made available to the public, then the companies would start lying to the fire departments about what they had because they didn't want it to get out to the public. And so that was, we thought, a legitimate concern. That, uh, and, and we actually ended up with a provision that was a little bit of a compromise on the, the uh, trade secrecy claims. Mm-hmm. It, it turned out to be a good one, I thought, where if you were going to make a trade secret claim, you ha- had to declare that you were making one or more, you you just, in your inventory, you'd have to say, you know, chemical X, Y, and Z are trade secrets. And, but the, for the fire department, you'd have to then put the formula and the, the MSDS in the, in the, what's out, what became known as a lockbox outside the factory. Mm-hmm. So when the fire department got there to come in to uh, address a, a hazard, they could look in the lockbox, they could see what the trade secret was, just, and then they could run it through their own computers to figure out what are the right fire suppression or what are the right cleanup tactics to use. Hmm. And my information was that, and that, that satisfied everybody, uh, my information was that it was at, never even used, the companies never even claimed trade secrets, it was just a, oh. a ploy to you know, try to pr- prevent the ordinance from going through, but whether it was, I don't, I don't know or not. But, but those are some of the issues that, that got the firefighters. And, and similarly, another group that was really important in this whole coalition was the plumbers union, because the plumbers mm. had to be highly skilled. They had to put in all the toxic gas lines, not just the water and sewer lines, but the toxic gas lines. Yeah. And that had to be done to 100% accuracy, or else you'd have a leak. And occasionally, you did get leaks from those gases. Yeah. And so they established their own training school. They became the the world um, leading authority on how to do the plumbing on big semiconductor plants. And they became very close allies of ours in all of this stuff too. It's one of the few times that the industry agreed to do business with a union. Everything else there is is non-union, but for the plumbers, they knew they had to have perfection and the closest they could get to that was by working with the plumbers union. Hmm. That's really interesting. Okay, so the hazard materials ordinance is enacted and then and then it's enacted in the state of California and so i guess there were two things right there's the hazardous materials storage ordinance and the right to know was it is that a separate ordinance right. yeah okay we we combined them both and they did as i recall i think it was similar in the state uh-huh um in when it got to the the federal government the, the right to know just got incorporated into the 
the Texas Release Inventory, which is an amendment to Superfund, um, separate from the storage ordinance. Right, right. Okay. And so you all worked, were part of a national coalition that worked on, was it the original Superfund or the or the the amendments in 1986, the super drive for super. It was the, re- the reauthorization. That's really how the National Toxics Campaign came together. Okay. It had originally been the National Campaign Against Toxic Hazards, started in Boston, mm-hmm. which was a project of citizen action at the time. Mm-hmm. And it, it evolved into the National Toxics Campaign and became a coalition of groups such as ours all around the country mm-hmm. that were fighting in one way or another hazardous materials, hazardous waste, and and that was, you know, a, a lot of the energy came from that network, but working in coalition with a number of other networks around the country mm-hmm. to get Superfund reauthorized. And so w- tell me, just say a little bit more about the National Toxics Coalition and John O'Connor and just whatever you... Well, it was, again, a, a uh, kind of a historical coincidence that all this stuff was going on at the same time. Mm-hmm. And, and John O'Connor, um, who became the, the, uh, the chair of the National Toxics Campaign, had been a citizen, organ- citizen an, an organizer for <clears throat> citizen action mm-hmm. in Massachusetts. He and another guy named Gary Cohen had gone to um, college together in Massachusetts and started working together and, John had grown up really with an asbestos dump site in his, at a park in his backyard. So he used to go play baseball on top of an asbestos dump. He'd talk about that. Hmm. And he, he, he took these issues again, very personally. And he was a brilliant organizer who saw the, the value of connecting and linking some of the, the hazardous waste site organizers in different parts of the country with activists who came out of Citizen Action, who came out of some of the other activist groups around the country into molding them all into one national organization with a, a a shared goal of reauthorizing Superfund. And it wasn't just to get more money into the program. They, we all saw it as an opportunity to add in some amendments. Right. And and the, the Toxic Release Inventory was one of those amendments. Another important one was the one that set up the technical assistance grants for community organizations to be able to hire their own experts to oversee the work of the cleanup contractors that were brought in for these these toxic sites. And there were a couple of other amendments, and I'm forgetting what they are right now, that were also part of that. And it was a you know it was a very sophisticated political campaign because there was a lot of pushback on it. And it was during a, a presidential primary campaign, and the, the, it, it got kind of almost sidetracked by some of the presidential politics. And the, and the one thing I remember well was that Bob Dole, who was a senator from Kansas at the time, was the Republican nominee for president. And he was doing some campaign work up in New Hampshire, trying to stir up support. And there was a woman who was one of the leaders of the the Toxis campaign named Martha Bailey, who had lived near a dump site in New Hampshire and had gotten highly motivated to try to get that mess cleaned up, not only in her backyard, but in other people's backyards. Right. And she organized some of her uh, colleagues 
to show up at campaign appearances that Bob Dole would come to and start interrupting his speeches and saying, Bob, and Bob Dole was the, the, the head of the Senate at the time, right. and he was bottling up a vote on Superfund. He wouldn't let it come to the floor. And they started raising this publicly. He started getting really uptight about the whole thing, tried to shut him up, and they wouldn't shut up. These were, these were old grandmothers who were very feisty. Yeah. And so they, they showed up several different times, and he began to realize that every time he came to New Hampshire, which was the first primary, he was going to get bashed. And the media is going to start asking questions about why are you bottling up Superfund? Right. And so he eventually let it go. He said, I, I can't take this. And so he let it go for a vote. And and that was what, what really unclogged the logjam is the way I look at it. And it was because of Martha Bailey and her colleagues working with the NTC that was able to actually do that. The other thing that was really a, a novel campaign tactic as part of that was what was called the super drive for Superfund. Mm-hmm. This is again a Johnny O'Connor brilliant idea where they decided to have pickup trucks, or not pickup trucks, panel trucks start from four, con- four corners of the country. So, Northeast, Northwest, Southeast, Southwest. Mm-hmm. And the trucks would make stops all along the way, picking up hazardous waste in each of the communities that had a big dump site and then converging on Washington right about the same time that they were going to have the vote for the reauthorization of Superfund. Yeah. And of course, we realized that we couldn't actually pick up hazardous waste because that would be illegal and we'd be violating, you know, a hundred different laws. And yeah. so, but the, the, the truck that came by our community, we ended up parking outside of the, the headquarters of Ed Shaw, who was the Republican congressman at the time. And we brought in a bunch of bottles of water that we, put some colored things in and said this was hazardous waste and and did a big press conference. And I just remember there's a great picture of John up in the truck holding one of these jars of so-called hazardous waste. Of course, we had a lot of hazardous waste, just we weren't putting it in the truck. Sure. Anyway, they did this in multiple places all around the country from the four trucks, and they all did converge on Washington. All the leaders from around the country also showed up and we, we were able to all participate in various press conferences and go to the floor to see the, see the votes. One of the other things I forgot to mention that before this, this happened was that we did a summer campaign in the summer of 84 where we, we started going door to door, carrying petitions, calling on EPA to get Superfund involved in the cleanup in Silicon Valley, saying that mm-hmm. the companies were just letting it go and weren't doing a good job. And we worked, again, with a broad network of labor and community organizers that summer, and we collected thousands of petitions going door-to-door in the neighborhoods that were the most polluted. And it was not a hard sell. It was just like saying, you know, if you want your neighborhood cleaned up, sign the petition to get EPA to do their job. Right. So, so I was sent back to Washington along with a number of other people from around the country they were part of NTC, and we got a meeting with Bill Ruckelshaus, who was the head of EPA at the time. Mm-hmm. And sitting at a, one of those big conference tables at EPA headquarters, when it was my turn to talk, I took out a huge container of these petitions, pushed it across the table to him, and said, here's thousands of people in Silicon Valley that are demanding that EPA do its job and to, to bring it super front authority to help with, we, we're in a crisis and we need your, your help. Yeah. 
And it was shortly after that that EPA Region 9 made their announcement that they had, in fact, listed all these sites as Superfund sites. Hmm. So, um, but it was all that work, not just by us, but by many, many groups around the country, but working in coalition with NTC to actually make this happen. Um, and there were a number of the Washington-based groups that were also participants in this. And and we we couldn't have done it without their support because they knew how the system worked a lot better than we did. Right. They couldn't have done it without our support because they needed a grassroots space and we helped them provide that. So it was a, it was a good match and it was a good experience, I, th- I think, for everybody. I've, I've, I mean, there were a lot of moving parts and a lot of different people involved, and I've never heard any serious criticism of, you know, so-and-so screwed up or you should have done it this way, or, you know, why didn't you do that, or et cetera, the way you get oftentimes in big political campaigns like that. I think it was one of these things that people really did think was a, a win-win for pretty much everybody. And and the results, I can, I think that my own view is that the two things that we made the most use of were the amendments that created the toxic release inventory, because that gave us access to this information, not only in Silicon Valley, but by factory all around the country. Right. But also the, the technical assistance grants, because we were able to get several of those grants for some of the sites here, and then work with the working with the neighborhood groups, be able to help them to understand what was going on and sometimes show up at some of the public participation hearings to say, we want you to do, you know, this, that, or the other thing that our technical experts said is important to do and that is, is possible to do, and, and we want you to do that. So I think those two things in, in specifically were, you know, well worth the effort and were had had a big impact here as well as in many other parts around the country. Yeah. I, I you know, the, the, I mean, I don't think that even those provisions is exactly famous, but the toxics release inventory has, I think, gotten more, it's a very impactful part of the law, as you said, and it continues to be, um, it's gotten, yeah. I think a little more sort of recognition and attention maybe than the, than the, than the tags, the technical assistance grants, yeah. but yeah, but yeah, um, for sure. But this importance of the tags is is very very is very real because and I, I know you've you've talked about this that you know the you know, whoever it is IBM or you know just whatever company is they're proposing their fixes or their here's what we're going to do with their experts to EPA under Superfund or whatever and the community unless they already have you know chemists and geologists or you know whatever they're 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 pretty overmatched as far as the technical aspects of what to how to uh, pick apart what the industry is saying well this is what'll work or we can't do that because it's too expensive or whatever and this really provides the communities with some expertise to to help you know at least uh, probably doesn't totally even out the um, the resource problems but it's 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 a it's a significant tool for the communities when they're trying to you know make sure that they're getting the best possible cleanup that they can fight for. Yeah, I agree. I think it's a really important model and I wish it were used in a lot of other situations Yeah. because anytime you run into complex problems that require complex solutions and, and particularly when it involves highly technical issues, whether it's toxicology or geology or, you know, whatever it is, most communities don't have anything close to the kinds of technical resources that they need. And and the companies have, have you know, 
limited limitless money to spend on on the you know what they put forward as the solutions and if there's nobody else there to oversee what they say are the the right solutions then you get what 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 they're going to want to do and, and you know the government in theory EPA in this case is supposed to be reviewing all this stuff but again their own resources are you know rather limited compared to you know the billions of dollars behind the tech industry at this point uh, or, or at at the point when we were talking about so any any additional specific resources targeted to really oversee what was going on is is really important now the, the limit on the tag grants was $50,000 per site so yeah it's not it's nowhere near what they were paying their experts and their consultants but it's it's not nothing it's a, and it's a whole lot more than what they would have had otherwise so i would say it it certainly made a difference and it also had a i, I think a a preventive impact because mm-hmm. the companies knew that their work was going to be reviewed not just by EPA but by this watchdog group that was hiring pretty good technical experts of their own right. and so they wanted to make sure that they were not going to get caught up cutting corners or you know doing sloppy work so right. and as i say this is as as you see increasingly the intersection of complex technical problems intersecting with complex political problems bringing independent expertise to the table to be able to at least be part of the discussion is really important and yeah. it doesn't happen nearly enough the the tags hasn't wasn't adjusted for inflation or everything or anything so it's still 50,000 which doesn't go as far as it did yeah. in in the 80s but it is yeah. still significant yeah. Yeah. i i agree with you that 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 should be uh, that's a that's a really important idea that could and should be picked up for other environmental laws and and areas where communities are are um you know facing in industry that they that they are sort of overmatched by i'm just thinking about you know the, the the one of the things i'm actually working on now is the you know the chemical industries plan to build out build a whole lot of incinerators around the country to burn plastic which they call chemical recycling and it's not really recycling really and, they're still they're still pushing that i didn't oh, know yeah. that oh very very hard very hard both at the state level and the federal level and so that's just another place where you know there's already communities that are having these things proposed and they're you know and they like they're looking around looking for help but they could use you know the superfund is it's it's after the problem is already there, right? That the the toxic waste yeah. site has been identified, but y- y- people communities should have that those resources even at the at the beginning, not at the end of the process after their drinking water has already been contaminated. Absolutely. I mean, I, I'm just thinking too that with all these new chip plants that are now going to be built, I mean, there should be in each community there should be some kind of independent resource to provide the kind of expertise the community doesn't have yeah. and that that should be part of the, you know, you know, maybe that's still not too late to try to build that in. Yeah. And frankly, it wouldn't take all that much money compared to the billions going in for the subsidies right. to provide that, provide that kind of research and technical support. So it, 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 it really should be applied applicable to most big developments. And you're right to do it at the front end rather than wait till the waste end. Thank you. 
The Toxic Avengers podcast is produced by me, Daniel Rosenberg. You can visit our website at ToxicAvengersPodcast.com and follow us on Twitter at ToxicAvengerPod. If you like the show, please tell your friends and leave a review on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever else you're listening. Send your feedback and guest requests to ToxicAvengersPodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of the Toxic Avengers Podcast.